Hey everyone, you are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how they can help us to think about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I'm co-PI of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life Project, which, along with this podcast, is generously supported by the John Templeton Foundation. In this episode, titled Jane Austen on the Virtues of Social Life, I speak with Professor Karen Storr of Georgetown University about Jane Austen's explorations of the social dimensions of virtue in her novels. I hope you enjoy our conversation. very pleased to have Karen Storr with me on the podcast this morning. Karen Storr is the Ryan Family Term Associate Professor of Metaphysics and Moral Philosophy at Georgetown University, and she's also the Senior Research Scholar at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics there. Karen got her PhD in philosophy at UNC Chapel Hill. She's written widely in moral philosophy, including a book on manners. And she has a book coming out soon called Minding the Gap, Moral Ideals and Moral Improvement. And she's also working on a book on Kant as a guide to life. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I'm thrilled to have you. I recently was reading this article that you wrote on Aristotelian friendship, which I thought was amazingly beautiful and super important. And that kind of inspired me to invite you onto the podcast. And I had also heard that if I was going to do Jane Austen, I would absolutely have to get Karen Storr. And then I was searching online and I saw, yes, you have written on Jane Austen and moral imagination and manners and practical wisdom. So I'm super excited to have you. And I guess the first thing that I want to ask is, how did you get interested in Jane Austen? And can you tell us a little bit about who Jane Austen was and what her enduring value is? So I have loved Jane Austen since high school. I think, like many people, my first introduction to Austen was through Pride and Prejudice. But I've since read her six main novels so many times I've lost count. And I return to them all the time. And I think for a variety of reasons. Many people enjoy Austen's prose, including me. She's very funny. She has wonderful stories and fantastic characters. And her, her novels are just a delight to read. But I think as I began my study of philosophy, I also realized that Austen is not just a sort of lighthearted novelist. I don't think I ever thought she was just a novelist in that sense. Um, and Austen herself is a big defender of novels. But I've come to appreciate the extent to which Austen's novels exemplify a kind of moral seriousness and a richness in, in an understanding and thinking through human behavior and human moral development in the context of social life. And Austen is simply brilliant at working out in the context of her novels a bunch of different kinds of 
moral problems and moral character flaws and strengths. And the more you read her novels, I think, the more you start to see the significance of them, not just for literature, which is really important, but also for anyone who's interested in how we become better people, um, how we raise our children well, and how we set up our social and physical environments to make it possible for us to live well. Well, it's interesting that you like her prose so much. You know, she has... She has some pretty famous detractors. So the one that um, is especially harsh on her is Mark Twain. He's a Jane Austen hater. He calls her prose unreadable, entirely impossible. And he claims that he detests her of all people without reserve. That sort of reading her makes, makes him detest her. And of course, he's not alone. There were some other very prominent male American writers who really lay into her. What do you think that's about? As a Missouri native, I hate to say this, but I think Mark Twain is just wrong about <laughs> Austin. I mean, he's welcome to find her prose unreadable, but many people disagree finding her prose delightfully funny and biting and, and its humor, which is something one would have hoped that Twain would appreciate about her. Austin, interesting, I think many people who dislike her work do so. I think for a variety of reasons, there are some people who quite understandably see Austin is concerned primarily with these trivial little details about social life and dinner parties and calling cards. And it can seem as though Austin's world is very small and very narrow and not important. And while she has detractors who are women, Charlotte Bronte, for instance, and certainly many defenders who are male, I think that in the background, there's a picture, sort of an ongoing picture about Jane Austen, in which her concerns are, you know, what concerns are in her novels are sort of small, trivial spheres that are typically associated with domestic life, with women. And so in the scheme of things, in the scheme of world affairs, may not seem particularly important. But I think this is a mistake on a couple of levels. I think Austen is actually much more interested in broader social issues than people think. And I think she also thinks that what look like these trivial, minor domestic affairs are actually of great importance to people's moral development and the way in which they live their moral lives. So I think that people who read her novels and say, you know, she's just interested in how these women who live in this very narrow, wealthy social circle, how they sort of work out their daily lives and who they're going to marry. If you read her just is interested in that, then I think it's a misreading of her. Well, that's really helpful because I have to say, just personally, I have struggled with Jane Austen, and I think you just described my reaction better than I could have described it myself. I look at it and I'm like, wow, this is like serious checklist, right? You know, this is just like, I, like I want to get the guy. How do I get the guy? At first blush, it does seem a little trivial, but then as I, as I have that reaction to Jane Austen, I worry that I'm being completely unfair to her because obviously that's, that's a world that would have been her lived experience and maybe not so much as a matter of choice, but a matter of, of where society is, is keeping her. But I really just want to invite you to say more about why what might look trivial and narrow is actually deeply important and has something to teach us about virtue and happiness. I think it is easy to see Austin. Austin wrote about the world she knew, and that is the world that she knew. She was part of what is usually referred to as the gentry or sort of an upper class of, of British 
social and political life, but she was at toward the bottom of that in some respects. She herself spent most of her life or much of her adult life in an economically precarious position, and that is relevant to her novels. So she is writing about her own experiences. I don't think that Austin thinks that she was in a position to write about some of the grander social and political affairs that were going on. That was in part a function of the fact that although she was well-educated for a woman of her time, her experience and her access to that broader world was very limited for reasons that have to do with the social position of women at the time. But Austin's discussions, I mean, though, although of course most of her, all of her novels in some sense can be read as romance novels, they're certainly not merely romance novels. She's not just interested in how the girl can get the boy by any stretch of the imagination. She's interested in a whole lot of things. She's interested in the ways in which family life works out, that sort of how one educates children and how even very loving parents can get things quite wrong sometimes. She's interested in the ways in which people's social roles have moral responsibilities. So, for instance, the landowners in her novels are responsible for the well-being of many people, the people in their households, their servants, but also their tenants and other people in their surrounding villages. And in, in her novels, when people fail to live up to those responsibilities, she's quite harsh on them. She also engages in a lot of critiques of existing social structures about the ways in which land and property are distributed, and particularly about the economic and social vulnerability of women in her novels. Because in many of her novels, the female characters, or there's nearly always some female characters who, while still very well off in comparison to many of most of the women of her day, were nevertheless dependent in ways that they couldn't do anything about. They were dependent on marriage for their economic sustenance or on their family members, and they were not in a position to do much about their circumstances. And Austin is very clear in her critiques of the ways in which when people fail with respect to their responsibilities to people who are dependent on them, that that's a very significant and serious moral failure. I think that Austin does an awful lot with what looks like that kind of narrow social world and those trivial concerns. And what she does has repercussions that go well beyond the drawing rooms and the dining rooms and the ballrooms that people associate with her novels. Because whatever is going on in those rooms is reflecting a broader social structure that has significant moral implications. So there's, there is, I think, actually quite a lot of social critique going on in her novels. But apart from that, Austin, I think, also wants to emphasize that this fear that people might dismiss as being insignificant or unimportant is not at all. She also wants to elevate the moral importance of the domestic sphere in a way that might be seen by many, I think, contemporary thinkers as nevertheless still being really narrow in a sense that it gives women a space in the domestic sphere, but that's all. But Austin really does emphasize the importance of that sphere for both men and women in terms of their moral formation and moral development, and also I think their moral possibilities. What we can do and what we can become is very much a function of the environments in which we find ourselves. And Austin points out, which is almost certainly true, that the environment of a home in which we live and the homes of our friends and family members that we visit plays an enormous role in how our moral lives go. 
Right. Well, that all sounds very deeply Aristotelian because, you know, Aristotle teaches about virtue that it's habituation and it takes time and you have to be raised well. And it's, you know, from Aristotle's perspective, once you have come to form a bad character, it looks pretty hopeless for you, which is why he is so concerned. And I think Plato was concerned as well with, you know, proper moral education. And that would be, well, on one construal, that would be the domestic sphere. And so regardless of how we think that sphere is gendered, and if she's thinking with that tradition, then it would have incredible importance and value. Is that what she's thinking? I think so. I mean, there's no reason to think that Austin direct read Aristotle, although perhaps she did. Her father and brothers were highly educated. She's the daughter of a clergyman, and she would have had access to a lot of literature, but it's not clear that it would have been part of her education, um, at least not directly. On the other hand, I think it's absolutely true that there are a lot of Aristotelian themes running through her novels, particularly about that cultivation of virtue. There's no question that Austin sees the primary responsibility for the cultivation of virtue as lying in both parents. He thinks that both mothers and fathers have an enormous responsibility for how their children turn out. And she also thinks that a lot of parents get this wrong. There are a lot of bad parents in her novels. Even parents who love their children, on her view, can get things wrong by focusing on the wrong things or cultivating the wrong habits or failing to cultivate the right habits in their children in a lot of interesting ways. One of the things that's really quite fun, I think, about Austen's novels, for those of us that are interested in Aristotelian virtue and vice, is that her characters, there's some pretty vicious characters in her novels, but there's a lot of people who are, you know, more or less good people, but have some definite moral flaws. So there's kind of like, I think there's a lot of shades of virtue and vice in her novels that enable us to see how even sort of minor variations in people's moral sensibilities and moral capacities can have a pretty big effect on how their lives go and how the lives of people around them go. So there's certainly an emphasis on the ways in which relationships in the family and relationships among friends and siblings and also in romantic relationships, how those relationships influence and shape our characters. And there's also an emphasis, which I think is really interesting and in some ways very contemporary in Austin, on not just the ways in which other people affect our moral characters, but the ways in which our social and physical environments shape the possibilities. Austin's emphasis on social roles and how those things pertain to social class is one of the things that a lot of people find kind of irritating or maybe now irrelevant about her novels. Because they think, well, we don't live anymore in a society in which, you know, it matters who goes in first to dinner or who introduces themselves to each other because we don't, certainly not in the U.S., but also not in contemporary U.K. either. We just don't have a world in which these things seem to matter. And so it might look as though Austin is emphasizing too heavily all these social roles that people are occupying. But I think that, to see that, I mean, of course, the actual social roles that she's talking about are anachronistic. But, of course, it's also a mistake to think that we no longer have anything like social stratification or that the social roles that people occupy play no role in what they can do. Because our possibilities 
for action and expression and choice are also affected by our environment in really interesting ways. And so even though we don't really worry about who is asking who to dance in a ballroom very much anymore, we care quite a lot about how conversations go in boardrooms or in conference rooms or in other kinds of contexts in which people occupy social roles and where those social roles carry different degrees of social power and social responsibility. Austin characters who are sort of her most virtuous characters tend to be people who take their social responsibilities very seriously. They are not caught up in the maybe the external trappings of their social roles. She's quite hard on characters who mistake high social position for good moral character. Austin thinks those things do not travel together. Right. Um, some of the most virtuous characters are actually comparatively poor. But she also recognizes that if, if someone is not conscious of the role that they're playing in a social situation, that they're likely to get things wrong. And so there's a sort of constant reminder in Austen's novels that whatever situation we're in, we need to be in a position to take up the social responsibilities of the role that we're occupying in that situation that I think is really interesting and just as important now as it ever was. Right. So it sounds like when you talk about being able to make the right judgment in a situation and see how these very general things like your social role and your physical environment and things like moral responsibilities bear on this very particular concrete situation right now, which is probably unrepeatable in some sense, that's kind of the stuff of of practical wisdom, right? Very much so. I think Austin's best character, most virtuous characters, the ones that she is putting forward as the closest thing to exemplars of virtue. So people like Anne Elliot in Persuasion or George Knightley in Emma um, or the gardeners in Pride and Prejudice are people who have an excellent sense, not just of what matters from a moral standpoint in general, but how to sort of make that manifest in the particular situation that they're in. So this may come across as saying, well, they know how to behave in social circumstances, which is absolutely true. They do. They know all the rules. But there are also characters in Austin's novels who know all the rules, but who are sort of morally, I don't know, we might say morally empty or maybe even morally bankrupt. So for Austin, being sort of a good person and occupying a social role well is not just about following all the, the rules of decorum and all the social rules that would be present in those circumstances. Because you could do that without, both without sort of having your heart in it, you could be doing it from other kinds of motives, just because it's what's expected of you, or it's otherwise you won't get all the right invitations if you want. Or you could be doing it from a kind of deeper moral sensibility and a capacity to make judgments. And one of the things that's striking about Austin's characters who seem to exemplify practical wisdom is that they don't have a kind of slavish obedience to social norms or social rules because they recognize that sometimes those rules, following those rules, will end up making things worse in some respects. And so her, her best characters, the ones who exemplify practical wisdom, tend to be characters who can see correctly what kind of situation they're in and can 
modify what they're doing in ways that will turn or transform situations into what they should be. So to give an example, Pride and Prejudice has a lot of characters who are on their way to developing practicalism, as well as characters who will never get there. So Aristotle, of course, thinks that practical wisdom is something that we develop with experience, life experience and proper reflection. And he's careful to note that it's just sort of getting older doesn't make you practically wise. But nevertheless, we would expect that younger people are less likely to have practical wisdom than their older counterparts. Pride and Prejudice has, I think, not sort of, I'm not sure there are any major characters in that novel who really perfectly exemplify practical wisdom in the way that they do in other novels. Elizabeth Bennett, who of course is the heroine of Pride and Prejudice, is on her way there, but not quite because she makes some mistakes. Elizabeth Bennett has a lot of confidence in her own judgments. She's like Emma Woodhouse in this sense. And most of the time she's right, but not always, because she has a kind of satisfaction in her own capacities that while understandable, and actually maybe one of the things that we like about her is her confidence, but she does occasionally get things wrong. And in particular, she makes mistakes about the characters of George Wickham and about Fitzwilliam Darcy. Now, this is not entirely Elizabeth's fault. She didn't have access to some of the information that she would have needed. But what she does is she allows, like many of us do, new information that she gets about people to sort of reinforce her existing opinions of them. On the other hand, Elizabeth is also open-minded enough to be at least amenable to the to the possibility of being wrong. She has, luckily for her, her sister, Jane Bennett, who, although agreeing with her in most of the important things, does occasionally serve as a kind of corrective to Elizabeth's tendency to jump to conclusions about people. But Elizabeth needs to undertake a process of moral development and an improvement in her self-understanding. And so what we see in Pride and Prejudice, I think, is a character whose moral capacities and whose practical wisdom improves over the course of the novel. The people in the novel, if there's anyone in the novel who already has practical wisdom, it would probably be Elizabeth's aunt and uncle, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner. We don't know as much about them because they're more minor characters, but we know that Austin sort of holds them up as a standard for good judgment and sort of moral rectitude. They're not particularly socially powerful people. In fact, they're some of the relatives that Elizabeth thinks that others are looking down on her for, although she knows that in fact they have more merit than a lot of much wealthier people in the novel. So there are, I think, in just about all of Austin's novels, exemplars of practical wisdom. She doesn't have very many such characters. Most of her main characters like all of us, are kind of works in progress. Yeah, I sort of feel like a novel about the perfectly practically wise person would either be totally boring or just unbelievable. Yeah, or they might turn out to be kind of flat. And it might be that Austin, like a lot of people, doesn't want to write about perfect people because she doesn't think of herself that way. Um, and maybe she doesn't think she knows any in real life. Yeah, or because there aren't any. <laughs> there aren't any. The one who the closest. Well, I mentioned, I think, Persuasion's Anna Elliot. In Emma, there's a wonderful and important scene in a ballroom. And in this scene, there's one character, Mr. Elton, who is trying to humiliate a young woman named Harriet Smith. And he does this for lots of reasons. 
but he does it by way of refusing to dance with her. Now, this is a snub that in the world of Austen's novels is really significant because it's not just, I don't feel like dancing with this woman. It's also, I don't see you as being worth my time. So it's a way of diminishing a person's social position and in a way that the person who is being humiliated that way can do nothing about. So in this ballroom scene, this not particularly nice guy, Mr. Elton, humiliates this other character, Harriet Smith, by refusing to dance with her. But the person who jumps in to rescue the scene is George Knightley, Mr. Knightley, who immediately steps in to ask Harriet Smith to dance. And again, this might just seem like not that big of a deal, but in Austin's novels, it's a really big deal because Knightley is the socially most powerful person in the room. And his asking Harriet to dance with him is a way of reestablishing her social position in that ballroom. And it's also a kind of moral rebuke to Mr. Elton for his efforts at humiliating Harriet Smith by not dancing with her. So Mr. Knightley, in that context, uses his social position and his social role in that ballroom as a way of sort of remedying a moral wrong and reestablishing moral relationships. And so this is one of the things that Austin, I think, is very focused on in her descriptions of social interaction, the capacities of people to use their moral judgment to act in social circumstances that not only reflect their own judgment about the world, but actually alter those social arrangements for the better, reestablish relationships or engage in subtle moral condemnation of other people's bad behaviors. And so practical wisdom in Austen's novels exemplifies itself in social life by the ways in which characters use their social roles and engage in social interactions in, in ways that have moral significance for their broader relationships of the community that they're in. What about people who have a social role that they probably didn't choose? I mean, very few of us really choose our social environment or the roles that we occupy in them. I mean, we have more choice today, but it's it's still not total. So what if you find yourself in a social role that really doesn't have any moral authority attached to it? Does that just mean that practical wisdom isn't available to you? Or how does that, I mean, how does it work if you're socially kind of really far down? So even the socially far down people in Austin's novels are still very socially powerful in many respects because they're all part of the gentry, just about everyone in her novel is. But there are ways in which in her novels, the sort of socially inferior people can nevertheless exert a lot of moral authority. And in Pride and Prejudice, the gardeners are a good example of this. Um, the contrast that Austin often draws is between people with a whole lot of social power who do not use it well or who misuse it. So Aristotle, in the Nicomachean Ethics Book 1, um, in his discussion about the relationship between virtue and happiness, of course, says that Virtue, while not sufficient for happiness, is the better part of it. And so he has this line, which I know you know very well, about how given bad leather, you know, a good shoemaker, a cobbler, will still be able to make the best shoes possible out of that bad leather. And I think that theme, that idea, is very present in Austin's 
novels, this idea that if you are virtuous, if you have moral virtue, even if your social position is not ideal, or even if it's in decline, or if, if you're in a position where you can't do what you might have been able to do with more resources, nevertheless, your capacity to sort of do well with what you have, which is what requires virtue, is going to be very important to making your life go well. So many of Austin's wealthiest and most powerful characters are often also some of her most morally bankrupt ones. So in Pride and Prejudice, um, Lady Catherine de Bourgh is a great example of this. She's a very powerful woman, and she takes her social role quite seriously, but she gets it really wrong. She's a really awful person. She's arrogant. She's interfering. She's inclined to sort of run roughshod over everybody else's interests. And so there's nothing about her social position that we're supposed to think is good for her, much less good for everybody else. In the contrast with people like the gardeners who are in trade, which is a, you know, a kind of a snub in Austin's novels, like to be in trade is to be, um, have like a slightly, in some people's minds, slightly dodgy background. But the gardeners who again are Elizabeth Bennett's aunt and uncle are morally virtuous people, and they're certainly not poor, but they don't have a lot of social status. But they serve as a really important moral force in the novel, because we know that they have good judgment, and that they will always do well in the circumstances that they're in. And it's no accident that when the, the gardeners and Elizabeth Bennet meet up with Darcy at his estate in Pemberley, that Darcy likes the gardeners, that he appreciates their merits. And this is one of the things that shows us that Darcy is not the snob that Elizabeth had originally taken him to be, that Darcy's um, moral judgment is much more nuanced and much better than Elizabeth had granted him credit for. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I could invite you to say a little bit about how this idea of practical wisdom or good judgment depends on the way that and what people love. So I know that in Aristotle, um, he thinks that the practically wise person has to have moral virtue, where that means for him, rightly, properly habituated appetites. So the things that you want have to be correct in order for your judgment to be good, because otherwise, you know, reason sort of gets dragged around by by passion and disordered desire in ways that are really problematic and prevent you from being wise. And of course, what we love and how we love, and of course, friendship, as you know, um, is is very important to Aristotle's picture. And I'm, I'm wondering where love and friendship and desire come into the picture for Jane Austen. So I think Jane Austen is really interested in love, and she's certainly interested in friendship. The friendships that she describes in Pride and Prejudice, I think, has some of the best friendships in her novels, especially Jane and Elizabeth, the two oldest Bennett sisters. Um, now, the Bennets, Jane and Elizabeth, have an unusual relationship. They are sisters, and they're very close to each other, and they're confidants. They have three younger sisters, and I think there's no question that the two of them love their three younger sisters, but they don't have the same kind of closeness to them as they have to each other. And Jane and Elizabeth are excellent examples of Aristotle's ideas, I think, about complete friendship and how friends can make each other better by caring about the other's good in a way that 
how does the person sort of identify with that good? So Aristotle famously says that a friend is another self. And for Jane and Elizabeth, they their relationship is such that they really see each other's good is bound up with their own. So Elizabeth has no separation between Jane's happiness and her own. And likewise for Jane, um, if, if Elizabeth isn't doing well, neither is Jane. And this kind of relationship, the exemplification of it, and it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. They're not exactly alike. They don't always fully understand each other. But they, they love each other, and they love each other in a kind of unselfish way that enables them to to be goods to each other in ways that not all friends are capable or not all sort of companions are capable of doing. Austin's, the relationship, there are a lot of people in Austin's novels who do genuinely care about each other, but whose attitudes toward others and attitudes toward their relationships get messed up by other things, sometimes appetites or sometimes other kinds of desires and concerns. So a, a, a parallel sister relationship might be in Sense and Sensibility, the relationship between the sisters of Eleanor and Marianne Dashwood, who are also very close to each other. But Eleanor, while having, generally speaking, practical wisdom in Aristotle's sense, has superior capacities of moral judgment to Marianne, who, while being a really good person, has a kind of excessive sensibility that interferes with her capacity for good judgment. And so while Eleanor loves Marianne, she's also frustrated by Marianne in many ways. And Marianne, on her part, while loving Eleanor deeply, often misunderstands Eleanor because she doesn't have a kind of depth of moral perception needed to really be a good friend to her. So I think for Austin, we get examples of relationships, of friendship, and other forms of love that are accompanied by good moral judgment. But there's not really that many of them in some ways. There's a lot of examples of people whose capacities to engage in good relationships and whose capacity to love people is sort of undermined or otherwise sort of stunted by other kinds of moral flaws or failings that they have. So sometimes people get too caught up in their desires for social position or their desires for wealth, and that interferes with their capacity to see the object of their love as sort of who they really are. This shows up quite a lot in Pride and Prejudice in the ways in which both the Bennett parents relate to their daughters. So Mr. and Mrs. Bennett are pretty bad parents, but they're pretty bad parents in different ways. I'm just going to assume that Mrs. Bennett does love her daughters, but she is focused at the, to the level of obsession on getting them married off. And it's pretty clear that she doesn't really care who they marry, as long as they get married to someone who can at least sort of support them. Do you think she's kind of pressured into that position? I mean, so I can imagine, it's hard to do, but I can imagine living in a society where I know that unless my daughters are cared for by a man, that their lives are going to be unhappy. And so I could see my primary goal being to have them cared for? Or is that too charitable to her? I don't think it's too charitable at all. In fact, I think it's actually the right view to take. So the opening 
scene of Pride and Prejudice, the opening couple of chapters, and with the very famous first line um, about how it's a truth universally acknowledged that a man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife, is supposed to set this up. Um, this idea, oh, Mr. Bingley is in the neighborhood. He's single and he has a good income. Let's get him married off, preferably to one of Mrs. Bennett's own daughters. The novel starts with this sort of family interchange about whether Mr. Bennett is going to visit Mr. Bingley, because if he doesn't visit Mr. Bingley, then Mrs. Bennett won't be able to proceed with her plan to get one of her daughters married off to this rich guy who's just moved into the neighborhood. And the way that it's set up, it looks as though Mrs. Bennett is completely ridiculous. Why think that this guy is going to marry one of her daughters just because he's moved into the neighborhood? And she looks so focused on it that she comes off as absurd. But she's not absurd in the sense that she is absolutely right about the economic vulnerability of both her and her five daughters. So the Bennets have no sons. They have five daughters. And they, while well off, are economically unstable. And this, as we eventually learn, is really Mr. Bennett's fault. Mr. Bennett had sort of counted on having a son. But in the absence of a son, their estate, which is a nice estate and brings them a good income is entailed or will be inherited by the girl's cousins, the Bennett sisters' cousins. And they all know this. They've all known this for years. Their youngest daughter is a teenager. This is not news to them that they're in this situation. But they've done nothing about it. And in particular, Mr. Bennett has pretty much just taken leave of any responsibility for it. They haven't saved money. They haven't done anything. So there is this reality, which is that when the second that Mr. Bennett dies, Mrs. Bennett and those girls are all in an extremely economically vulnerable and precarious position. And so Mrs. Bennett is not wrong to be worried about her daughter's economic futures and also to recognize that their best hope is through marriage, because that is the only way in which women of their social status can have a respectable way of life. So while Mrs. Bennett is in many ways a ridiculous character and she seems to not care at all about her daughters and what's actually in their interest. In fact, there's many ways in which she is much more in tune with their good than with their seemingly much more loving father, Mr. Bennett, who, while clearly caring about his daughters, certainly the oldest two, quite a bit does none of the things that a good parent would do to ensure their well-being after his death. Right. And what do you think, what's the source of that failure in him? Mr. Bennett is an interesting guy. Um, he, he clearly, he married a woman that he cannot love. And in fact, one of his few bits of sage advice to Elizabeth at the end of the novel is advice not to marry someone that she doesn't love. So at the end of the novel, when Elizabeth tells her father that Darcy has asked her to marry him and Mr. Bennett thinks that she doesn't love him, that she's marrying him just for the money, he's really horrified because he does think that this would be a big mistake. Because Mr. Bennett doesn't love his wife and he doesn't respect his wife either. And that becomes clear. So this itself, sets up a bad model for parenting because his daughters see him repeatedly, gently, but definitely mocking his wife in front of them. And what he does very, very frequently throughout the novel is retreat to his library, his own space. He absents himself from the life of his family 
and the well-being of his daughters. And in one hand, you might sympathize, you know, someone might think, well, you know, he's in a house full of women, you know, their concerns don't necessarily interest him, but, and he doesn't have to be interested in everything that interests him, but his constant tendency to just sort of throw up his hands and go back into his library and ignore what's going on around him is a serious character flaw in him. It's a failure to live up to his responsibilities as a parent. Now, whether he does this because he's just tired or because he's a serious introvert, I don't know. But I don't think there's any question that Austin means us to see this as a deep moral failing in him. He should be interested. He should be focused on their future, but he's not. I'm a pretty committed Aristotelian, and so I think that part of what it is to become virtuous is to have an exemplar, someone that you can look to, and that extends to our friendships, like somebody has to model good friendship for you. And I think that it's the job of parents, among other things, to model what married love is, you know, for their children. And that when this isn't being modeled properly, there are all kinds of effects downstream. So like, you know, the statistics, for example, of people whose parents are divorced, they're twice as likely to themselves be divorced. And, you know, there's a question like, why does that happen? As an Aristotelian, I'm sort of like, well, maybe it's because they didn't have that model. They didn't have that exemplar of proper married love. And it just sparks in my mind this question, does Austin think or does it become clear from her novels that she thinks that our ability to engage in these kinds of meaningful, loving relationships depends on practical wisdom, yes, but depends on there being an exemplar, like someone to look to, to give you, to give you something to imitate. Yes, I think so. I mean, I think we know in Austin's novels, it's evident to us generally who it is that Austin admires and who she doesn't. And I think in all of her novels, there are certainly a number of people who are genuine moral exemplars, but there are also, I think, exemplars of marriages and also sort of a family life that we're supposed to see and that heroines can generally see as exemplifying something that is morally valuable in a way that enables them to see this as being something that's worth pursuing. So in Pride and Prejudice, we discuss, I think that's the Gardeners. In Emma, I think it's probably the Westons. In Persuasion, which I think has one of the most wonderful examples of this, it's the Harvilles. So this is a, a, a couple. They are actually, they might be some of the least well-off people we ever meet in an Austen novel. So in Persuasion, which is the last of Austen's six novels, we see perhaps Austin's most severe social critique of not of, of wealthy landowners who pay no attention to the their moral and social responsibilities, but also of relationships that are just sort of really messed up in important ways. People who are much too focused on power and position and making alliances than they are on creating really loving, virtuous relationships with their spouses and modeling those for their children. And so in Persuasion, we have the heroine, Anne Elliot's father, who is a deeply vicious person. But she also has this model of some, some people that she encounters, some friends, this Captain and Mrs. Harville, who have very little money, 
Captain Harville has been injured in the war, and so he's very ill. But they are incredibly warm and hospitable and generous people. And so we can often tell a lot, Austin, I think in Austin's novels, about someone's moral character when we enter into their the physical space that they are responsible for. So there are a lot of great houses in Austin's novels, some of which are very forbidding, but also sort of morally I don't know, it morally empty places because the people who occupy them aren't capable of creating spaces in which good relationships and good family life can occur. So in Pride and Prejudice, Lady Catherine de Bourgh has this very grand house, but it's a horrible place that nobody in their right mind would want to spend much time in if they had any alternative. And then the Harvilles in Persuasion, you have this tiny little house that they have, that they, it's filled with children and, and, and things. And it's also filled with tremendous happiness and ingenuity and hospitality. And so I think in Austin's novels, there are people who are themselves morally virtuous and who, who care about creating environments for people that they love, the family members who live there and the people who come into their homes are able to create welcoming and warm spaces for others. And I think that it's for, for Austin's characters to be in, and this is maybe most apparent in Mansfield Park, which is actually probably my favorite of Austin's novels. It's not everybody's favorite. In fact, for many people, it's their least favorite. But I think this is a novel in which this, this theme, this relationship between someone's moral virtue and moral capacity and the physical space they create is really apparent because People who can can do this well create spaces in which people can feel at home and people can can flourish and thrive and and sort of engage their moral possibilities. And in households where that doesn't happen, whether it's because the relationship, the marriage relationship is a bad one or because there is insufficient attention to the sort of the, the needs of of the people who live there or visitors, places where that doesn't happen, are going to be inhospitable for moral development. So I think for Austin that the moral exemplar is in the person, but it's not just in the person. It's also in the way in which they can create spaces, social and physical spaces that enable other people to flourish as well. So we're a bit running out of time and So I just want to ask you, one, is there anything else about Austin's novels that you want to note? And two, I wanted to invite you to maybe give us an idea about how we can be better readers of Austin. So I think I'm one of the problematic people that doesn't read Austin well. So in part, I'm asking for myself, but also I think young people, um, how can young people get into, especially young women, approach and get into the novels of Jane Austen? I think it can be hard for people to see themselves in Austin's novels, given how remote Austin's characters in their lives may seem for us. And so I think it does take, like many novels do, a sort of openness or a willingness to try to engage in her novels, engage with her characters and in their lives on their terms. And in order to do that, one has to be open to the possibility that these interactions and ballrooms and these discussions about hats and um, things could actually have a moral significance beyond what it seems on the surface. And so I would say that the things that interest me most that I enjoy so much about Austin's novels is I think the ways in which we can see people's characters 
revealed and expressed sometimes in very small matters. You can tell a lot. I mean, we often think to them, you can tell a lot um, about someone's character, I think, by watching the way that they interact with the wait staff in a restaurant. Um, I think many of us have had the experience of thinking that someone who we thought was perhaps a really good person in seeing sort of the way in which they are when things get a little difficult or when things don't go quite their way, that we can see maybe something more is, is going on here. And I think there's a great deal of that in Austin's novels. You know, you can watch, she has some wonderful scenes where we see someone's behavior in a social circumstance that tells us a lot about their characters. And I think also recognizing that Austin's concerns go much beyond rules about um, how tea is to be served. It's much more significant than that. What she is interested in is how we can become better people and live well in whatever our social circumstances are. And to the extent that we have control over those circumstances and the circumstances as they affect other people, we ought to exercise that control so as to create social and physical environments in which moral growth and development is possible. And that's a theme that's as relevant as it ever was. And I think Austin's genius lies, and I think it's also part of her enduring appeal. I don't think that her popularity rests in just the fact that she's written some really great love stories that are quite funny. If that were all there were to Austin, I don't think she would continue to sort of capture the minds and hearts of so many people for so long. I think like any great novelist, she is writing about things that touch all of us and continue to do so, things that, deep questions that matter to us about how we want to live and how we can live in our circumstances. And so I think a kind of looking past the surface stuff and looking down for those deeper questions and seeing what she has to say about them is the way to read Austin. Right. Getting past appearances and what's shallow and getting into what's deep. I think that's really helpful. It's helpful for me to see what appears to be trivial actually has a lot of, of moral significance. So I think we'll leave it there just for matters of time. But thank you so much, Karen. This was really great. Thank you, Jen. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love a philosophy podcast that is part of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life Project, which is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. For more resources on the works discussed in today's episode, head on over to our project's website, virtue.uchicago.edu, and check out our blog, thevirtueblog.com. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, do me a big favor and give us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bye.